Poddo. Nothing happens in this world without an element of chance. In July 1943, during the height of the German Air Force's bombing raids over England, a lone bomber separated from its mechanical brethren happened to fly over the town of East Grinstead. Reports here vary. Some people say the pilot spotted a convoy of trucks in the high street. Others claim it was the puff of smoke from a train coming into the station. But the consequence is agreed upon. A bomb was dropped on East Grinstead. It made direct impact with the town cinema, killing 108 people, many of them children. It was about 5pm and they were at a matinee watching a Hopalong Cassidy film. Hopalong Cassidy was a tough-talking cowboy portrayed by the actor William Boyd in more than 60 films, seven of which, Hoppy Serves a Writ, Border Patrol, The Leatherburners, Colt Comrades, Bar 20, False Colours and Rides of the Deadline, were released in 1943 alone. In a town of just 8,000 people, this was a cataclysmic event. Everyone would have known someone who had died on that fateful July day. Nothing would be the same again. All because a single German pilot flying over the Sussex countryside and probably anxious to get his plane back to his squadron, saw the outline of a truck or a wisp of rising smoke. So he dropped his payload and flew off, and 108 people died beneath him. That was just a split second in his life, a life that was probably otherwise a normal one. The Unabomber only killed three people, the same number who were killed by the Sarnaev brothers in the Boston bombings. Yet this anonymous pilot just kept on flying, and maybe he lived with the dead for the rest of his life, or maybe he forgot about them. Maybe he never even knew that the bomb had found its target, or a target. The Whitehall Cinema bombing was a tragedy that befell a resilient town, and it became something of a footnote in the remarkable history of East Grinstead during the Second World War. It's a story that may unlock everything else that has come to pass in the 75 years since the war ended. This is the story of the guinea pig club and the town that didn't stare. I'm Nick Hilton. Archibald McIntyre was born in New Zealand in 1900, the son of an artist, Mabel Hill, whose simple landscape paintings are still littered around the galleries of the Antipodes. Indeed, McIntyre's whole extended family are a who's who of minor New Zealand cultural celebrities. As a side note, isn't it sad that the adjectival form of New Zealand is just New Zealand, when there are so many good possibilities like New Zealish a la Poland, New Zeish a la Ireland, or New Zair a la Thailand? His uncle, Alfred Hill, was an oceanic composer of some repute, and his brother John was a noted war artist. But for whatever reason, Archibald skipped the family business and trained to become a doctor at the University of Otago. From there, it was a hop, skip and a jump via the Mayo Clinic, St Bart's and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Diseases to East Grinstead. In arriving there, he changed the story of the town forever. A simple, lucky coincidence. You're, you're really right. There's so much about this story that's just luck. We always have to be very careful as historians in talking about inevitability. And there is a point at around 1936, 1937, where this story becomes possible. Because before then, if you suffered from a serious burn, you died from it. That's the voice of Emily Mayhew, a military medical historian and the author of The Guinea Pig Club, Archibald McIndoe and the RAF in World War II. We didn't really know how to treat it. We certainly couldn't treat the infection. 
the, the physiological response to a burn was for the body to, to dehydrate very quickly. And we didn't know that what you could do is pump saline into someone and keep them alive. We worked out how to do that around the mid 1930s. And we didn't really realize we had that expertise. It took war for us to realize that we had. So you have this first piece of luck as it, as it were, I mean, it's luck or whatever it is, but people who should have died of the kind of burns the guinea pig club have don't die anymore which means they're not dead, they're alive. And if they're alive, they need treatment. Mostly they go into a specialist RAF unit at Halton where nobody knows what to do with them. And then the RAF remembers that they've appointed a plastic surgeon, a, a consultant plastic surgeon, who they didn't expect to use. The consultant plastic surgeon, Archibald McKindo, certainly didn't expect to be used. He thought he'd just occasionally potter off somewhere and consult. And there's nothing in his personal life that indicates he's going to be this kind of heroic figure who's prepared to take the risks that he does. I think it's the thing that I'm asked most is, what is it in McIndoe that makes him want to do this? I have no idea. It was sheer luck. Maybe because he hadn't had a lot of patience, he had time to think about what he wanted to do. I think he was realising that plastic surgery was becoming about cosmetic surgery and he very much wanted it to be taken seriously. And there was a war on and he wanted to contribute to the war. So you have this, this incredible coherence of a patient group of unexpected survivors, a plastic surgeon who's prepared to take risks and do work that no one else has done. And a unit that's not very big, but that's all his, where he gets to decide everything that goes on in a small town. And it all just comes together and becomes the guinea pig club. Once McIndoe was at the Queen Victoria in East Grinstead, he began revamping the processes for treating severe burns injuries. That started by, not unlike your mad uncle on Facebook, denying the perceived wisdoms of modern medicine. Everybody always thinks that military or that medicine always moves forward, that it, it, we get improvements in technology and improvements in pharmaceuticals and medication and in techniques. But what, because there's no model for rebuilding a human face, McIndoe has to go back to basics. So he just has to be really, really good at skin grafting. He has to be prepared to take risks and trust his instinct. There is a treatment that is the, the latest thing in burns treatment, which is the application of a particular kind of chemical that forms a shell over the burn. And it's assumed, and, and this is mainly used on arms and legs, and it's been tested on arms and legs. And it's assumed that the burn heals underneath. Actually, it doesn't, it scars. It doesn't heal, it gets more infected and it scars. And on arms and legs, you can handle this, but on the face, on functional areas, on the face and hands, you really can't. So the first thing he has to do is to say to the medical profession who are receiving RAF burns casualties all over the country, don't use this cutting edge medical treatment, this cream that forms a shell. Just cover it up loosely with Vaseline and loose dressings and send them down to me in the, at East Grinstead. So that's very much taking a step backwards. And when they arrive at East Grinstead, what he also understands is that these wounds have got to be kept really clean and there isn't a modern way to do that there's only an old-fashioned way to do that which is with saline solution and really qualified experienced nurses constantly cleaning the wounds so that they're in a fit state for him to operate on but the rest of it is luck 
just as you said, it's luck. There is a great quote from the actor Edward Fox's mother in her book when she said, you know, how did you know how to repair an eyelid? And McIndoe says, I looked down at a burned boy and God came down my right arm. And it was just surgical instinct. There wasn't anything that taught him that. It was just good surgical instinct. And I guess what makes much of the story striking to people is the sort of aftercare and the community aspect of it, which I guess is the guinea pig club. This is the truly radical thing. I mean, you have a you have a surgeon who's prepared to take risks, who's clearly a really good surgeon, who's got really good surgical instincts, really good tissue handling. But the thing that's really radical is that he absolutely understands that the surgery he does is very much just the beginning of the journey. He has this quote about how the really important thing is what happens after the patient has left the operating theatre and what the patient does with what the surgeon has repaired. So he has this absolute balance of understanding that there's a surgical reconstruction and it's what's equally important is what goes on after surgery. He can secure the operating theatre, but what he really wants to do is secure the broader environment beyond the hospital so that people in those first few weeks of learning to live with their new selves are able to thrive. They're able to go places where people can read their injury and places where they can thrive. And we know that now. You can have the best surgery in the world, but if for some reason you're not able to become comfortable with the new person you've become, then ultimately that surgery will fail. And McIndoe understood that. Like very few surgeons then, and disappointingly, very few surgeons now. I mean, the guinea pig club is a sort of both a metaphor and also a literal thing. It's a literal thing. And, and it was founded in, in 1941, in the summer of 1941, when there were 20 young men in the hospital undergoing these long, complex surgeries. It was a beautiful summer. 1941 was a very nice summer. They were out in the garden and they decided, they said they should set up a club, a drinking club. They had a bottle of sherry on the ration and that they would just set up a drinking club and they would be there for each other. And there's really very little at that stage which indicates that they want to become a support group or, or anything that we, the way that we would understand this now. Just a group of people who know they're going to be in the same place for a really long period of time, who've been encouraged by McIndoe to watch each other's operations, to understand what they're going through. And they want to put together kind of a patient-centred group. And so the guinea pig club goes out into the world, I guess. How's the interactions between the club and the town is the town sort of supportive treats them like heroes obviously you've got this you know the town kind of embraces this label of the town that didn't stare but is that slightly self-mythologizing I don't know well it had to be managed they didn't come to him and say we would like to be the town that didn't stare so McIndoe goes out into town and he he's moved down to, to Sussex and he knows some people in the town so he starts by going to them one of whom was my grandmother He starts by going to them and saying, I've got these patients, we're in a hospital, the garden isn't very big, they're young men, they're going to be here for a long time and they're going to need to go beyond the hospital grounds, I can't keep them in. They'll be in their uniforms, but I'd like you to invite them over, I'd like you to have them to tea, I'd like you to talk to them and learn to look them in the eye. So it starts small. It starts with people visiting private homes in the town and he then thinks, well, this works and he goes, the Whitehall is, is a really important site. It's the biggest, I think, pub dance hall in the town. And he goes to see the manager of the Whitehall and his staff. And he says, my boys want to come and be able to go to the pub. 
and you're going to need to do practical things for them. You're going to need to serve them the drinks they want in, in glasses they can pick up. And if they need to go to the gents, somebody's going to have to help them because their hands may be in the kind of state where they can't manage zips or they can't manage buttons. So there are these two practical things that I need you to do. And in order to do those effectively, you need to be able to look them in the eye. You need to be able to have a conversation with them. And he only has to say that once. And then East Grinstead picks up the baton and then it becomes competitive. You know, how many guinea pigs can we have in our, in our pub, in our cinema, in our restaurant, in our church? How can we help them? How can we be as direct with them as possible? And it becomes part of the way that the town makes their contribution to the ward. And again, it's a great piece of branding and it really works. There's a yin and yang to this. On the one hand, the figure of Mackindo, a man of historical importance. On the other, the guinea pigs themselves, the burnt airmen, whose individual feats of heroism have been elided as they slide into their collective memory. But the reality is that to talk of Mackindo is to talk of the guinea pigs, and vice versa. Without Mackindo, there is no guinea pig club, no town that didn't stare. Gordon Bev, QC. He's Mackindo's grandson. I've always known that having QC after your name conveys some sort of legal eminence, but I wasn't sure exactly what it meant, so I asked a lawyer friend. Not a lot, they replied. So I asked whether they thought they'd ever be a QC, which is the sort of presumptuous question, but I like to confront these things head on. Probably not, they responded, before adding that. By that point, it would probably be Casey anyway, which I felt was exactly the sort of smart point a future QC would make. Anyhow, I wasn't speaking to Gordon for legal advice, but to talk about his grandfather. He was a, a plastic surgeon faced with an entirely unique position operating on burnt airmen who had experienced burns which had never really been operated on before in circumstances that, where there was virtually no knowledge on how to treat burns. And so he was really starting from a blank sheet. And so he took on the role of ensuring that they were reintroduced to life with their confidence. Kind of growing up, what was your family kind of sense of Mackinder's work? You know, was it was there a great sense of pride in in because presumably he must have died when you were, but maybe before you were born or no? I was eight actually. He died in 1960. I was born in 1952. So you asked me about myself. I had no idea as to the extent to which he was up there as a surgeon. Obviously, my mum and dad did because they had a greater insight as to what went on. I have read a lot of his letters, which uh, he wrote to his family, because during the war, he was across here really on his own because his wife, Adonia, and his children, that's my mum, were in America because he wanted them to be safe. So I've had access to reading a lot of his letters. You would not have known from reading those letters that he was doing anything exceptional. He was just getting on and doing the job. So yeah, I think it was only latterly that people came to appreciate what he was doing. I mean, I've spoken with people who've sort of discussed how it was almost by pure chance that he arrives in East Grinstead. Did you ever get a feel either from him or from your mother about his impressions of the town and the hospital and the setup there? He was just divvied up RAF and East Grinstead because it was a cottage hospital. My understanding is that nobody had ever really heard of East Grinstead, but he went down there and he liked what he saw. I mean, it was probably quite rude and crude, but it perfect for him because he had time 
to prepare it. It was like a blank sheet, like his surgery. There were clear reservations. There were, there were reservations on any number of fronts. There were reservations about what he was doing in the hospital because in, in the wards, he, he wanted them to be treated as men. They're in the wards. They could wear their uniforms, no ranks, because these were people who were going to be in there for a long time. And the medical profession didn't like that at all because it was tearing up the rule book. He would have none of it. And the same with East Grinstead. I mean, these were horrifically burnt people. And if you see some of the burnt airmen with uh, pedicles on them, you know, skin attached from shoulder to nose and all the rest of it. I mean, to, to you and I, who had never seen anything like this, it would have looked like people from Mars or something like that. And there was, I think, to start with, resistance. It's bad for my children to have a look at it. But he, I think he just effectively read the riot act. He went round all the places and said, look, these are burnt airmen who've been fighting for you. And, and they just fell into line. They said, that's fine. They became part of the town as a result. The Guinea Pig Club, the evocative name that has cemented the legend of Mackindo's airmen, was a crucial part of the medical process that evolved into something more profound. They formed in 1941 and they're a very informal club. So it is said that essentially the person who was elected the secretary had no fingers, so he couldn't write any notes. And the treasurer was elected because he had no legs and therefore couldn't run off with the money. That's the voice of Jonathan Parrott, manager of the East Grinstead Museum. The town is very proud of the fact that it has this unique relationship with a group of veterans. Very few places, other places do. And in fact, I think that pride is reflected in the guinea pigs themselves. Many guinea pigs chose to settle in East Grinstead. And it's probably by no coincidence, as it were, that the guinea pigs routinely every year would come back to East Grinstead to have the reunion. And up until their final reunion in 2007, they, I, th- I think, viewed East Grinstead as their town. East Grinstead was the guinea pigs. It wasn't anybody else's. One of the funny things about East Grinstead, or perhaps it's not funny or surprising at all, more lightly curious, is that the town had already played host to an unusually progressive proto-medical institution. In the mid-1800s, an Anglican priest named John Mason Neal, in my opinion a very good, solid Victorian name like Gerard Manley Hopkins or Henry Campbell Bannerman, formed a women's order of the church called the Society of St. Margaret. Their first convent, where they provided care and attention to the poor and neglected, was in East Grinstead. The point about the Order of St. Margaret is it was one of the first Anglican orders of nuns in the country. That's the voice of Catherine Ferry, an historian based in East Grinstead. She's a specialist on the British seaside and her previous books have been on cool subjects like Butlins, the 1950s kitchen and bungalows. Her book on the nuns will be out this year. Walking around the streets of East Grinstead in a town that was otherwise quite conventional, quite sort of traditional, small country town in Sussex, you know, it didn't really have any sort of background in these kind of radical movements at that point. So for an order of nuns to be established here was quite sensational, really. And it was the work of the warden of Sackville College, John Mason Neal, who was himself a key figure in what was called the Oxford Movement. And that was about actually kind of bringing ceremony and art and hymns and all the kind of pomp and ceremony of the old Catholic Church back into Anglicanism. It wasn't Catholic, but it had a lot of the trappings of Catholicism. The nuns' mission was to go out into local cottages, to go out to poor people and offer them nursing, because this was completely pre-NHS. 
you know if you needed a doctor you had to pay for it if you were poor and you were ill it was kind of tough luck the vicar might come once you were dead to say some prayers for your soul but there wasn't an awful lot of help and they went out to nurse people who lived in absolute poverty in hovels who had diseases like cholera diphtheria scarlet fever no cure for these and yet they went out and they nursed them just with their faith to sustain them and some of them died as a result and the nuns also ran schools for girls so they were interested in women's education at a time when that was pretty low down the priorities and it was only just becoming a cause really when the nuns first came here when john mason neil their founder first came here there was a lot of animosity any old sussex town any old kind of country town there was an instance where townspeople in east grinstead sort of hundreds of them actually stormed sackville college they set fire to things they threw stones at the windows and they went off to the pub got sort of tanked up again and went back to Sackville College. I mean, it must have been absolutely appalling to be poor John Mason Neal and the inhabitants of, of Sackville College at the time. But, you know, this was a genuine riot that happened in East Grinstead. To go from that to the point where the nuns were accepted and actually requested to assist and be part of towns events and celebrations you know whenever there was a kind of procession the nuns and the orphans were part of it this was a town that for some reason knew how to embrace things that other towns would have compartmentalized it became their identity someone came up with the town that didn't stare moniker and it stuck around for 80 years it's so buried into the identity of east grinstead that there were no other realistic options for the title of this podcast The bombing of the Whitehall Cinema in 1943 feels set apart from the guinea pigs. It's part of the town's personal history, the same fissure of trauma that cracked through town after town at that time. But it doesn't have that public-facing element that the guinea pigs have. What is there to memorialise about children dying while watching Hopalong Cassidy? Of all the towns in, in the country, it's the town that understands the air war best. I mean, there are lots of towns up in Lincolnshire and the places where the bomber command squadrons were based that might say, well, hang on a minute, we understand this too. But I think East Grinstead has, it takes, it, by the time of the bombing, it has a very strong sense of its responsibility and it has a sense every day of the air war. So my mum grew up in the grounds of the hospital. She learned to ride her bike in the hospital and she remembers being four years old and being told, if you hear the bombers going overhead, you just cycle like mad to the nearest house and hide under their kitchen table. So I think there is an understanding that the air war is real and present and dangerous. And I think probably when, when the bomb falls in East Grinstead and it does the damage it does, everybody would have been expecting it. It would have been almost not a surprise. It would have been almost like, you know, waiting for something to happen. And now it finally has. It's the single worst bombing, certainly in Sussex, perhaps in the whole of the southeast during the, the Second World War. So it hit a, hit a number of places, not just the Whitehall. It hit a few places on the high street. It hit other buildings on London Road. But the Whitehall, which was a sort of a massive building carrying all sorts of things from a dance hall to a cinema, was particularly badly hit because at the time it was bombed, at sort of just after five in the evening, there was about 180 people in the cinema watching a film. The interesting thing is they received a warning saying that there was an air raid in the area. But because this was such common 
occurrence, nobody reacted. They just assumed it was a sort of normal, it'll go by kind of thing. 108 people were killed in the bombing and there were 235 injured. And it sort of works out roughly that they were sort of divided into thirds. There was a, a third of that number were children, a third of that number were sort of adults, and a third of that number were Canadian soldiers who was billeted into the town. And it, it certainly changed people's outlook. I think you, when you sort of have to go past, and there are pictures of people going past the next day and sort of looking at this this wreckage in shock and awe i think once you can see the impact and the sort of the brutality of it i think it definitely changed people's outlooks and people's feelings towards the bombing and sort of the threat people are under during the wartime there's a perverse irony or maybe you shouldn't talk about perversion or irony when it comes to these tragedies i don't know that a puff of train smoke wrought so much destruction on east grinstead when the town would later play host to the most controversial figure in british railway history Richard Beeching, known to the country as Dr. Beeching, was an engineer who in the 1960s oversaw, as chairman of the British Railways, the wild downsizing of the country's railway lines, cutting some 6,000 miles over the decade and leaving many parts of the country geographically stranded. His reward? To be a notorious and often hated figure in public consciousness and also the tasty little baronage of East Grinstead. The background you've got to have here is that the, the British railway network was not planned because it was built by competing private companies in the space of about 30 years, we end up with like lines all over the place. Almost every little village anywhere in the southern half of the UK will have, will have a railway station. That's the voice of John Elledge, a writer on transport and infrastructure and host of the late great Skylines podcast. That's fantastic in terms of building that infrastructure. And it means that when, when the Luftwaffe tried to sort of take out the British railway network in the early 1940s, they couldn't because there was so much redundancy in there. But it also meant that particularly when the private car starts happening, a lot of those lines um, aren't profitable and there's no way of making them profitable. So in the 1950s, the government of Harold Macmillan gets this guy reaching to kind of look at the railway network and come up with a plan for rationalising it. And the slight difficulty here is that Beeching had a lot of connections with the private car industry. So this sometimes seems a little bit dodgy. But basically, his recommendations were that we would scrap almost everything from a modern perspective. We would keep basically the London commuter network and the main railway lines connecting, the main intercity lines, but almost everything else would go. Like his original report was was far more radical than, than what was actually delivered. We didn't go quite that far, but a lot of a lot of those tiny country lines, particularly outside the southeast of England, did go. And it left large chunks of the country without a railway line. And one of the stories of the last 20, 25 years is the railways have become successful again and there's usage going up, is that people are now turning around and saying, Well, well, why didn't we why didn't we keep those lines open? Wouldn't they have been useful? And the thing is like now, yeah, you can look at it now and think, yeah, we probably should have. But in 1962, 1963, a lot of it looked like a fairly rational decision to close this stuff. But while Dr. Beeching wore the East Grinstead tag, East Grinstead never wore the Dr. Beeching tag. To this day, it continues to be a happy little railway town. Indeed, its heritage line, the Bluebell Railway, sprung up in the wake of line closures between East Grinstead and Lewis, and was the first preserved standard-gauge steam-operated passenger railway open to the public in the world. How cool is that? When I was at school in East Grinstead, there were no history lessons about the guinea pigs. There were no trips to the Queen Victoria to find out about Mackinder. Nobody said the words, the town that didn't stare to me, until a couple of years ago, when I was already knee-deep in research about the Scientologists and Mormons and all those fun folk. Is this just a failure of my own education, or a broader, more collective negligence? Whilst making this podcast, I posted it on a few groups looking for people with connections to the guinea pigs. 
what's the guinea pig club, was the first comment I received. Is the town slowly forgetting its history? Is all the noise coming out of the Scientology community, all the Daily Mail headlines about celebrities dropping cool multi-millions to buy properties out here, eating away at the town's proudest legacy? How do we keep recent history recent as it inexorably becomes less recent, more historical? Hi, is that Martin? Hello. That's the voice of Martin Jennings, a British figurative sculptor. His notable works include a really fun statue of John Betjeman at St Pancras and a low-key kind of weird one of Philip Larkin in Hull. In 2014, he was commissioned to make a sculpture of Archibald McIndoe, the East Grinstead. Well, we um, come from a large family, grew up in Sussex, not far from East Grinstead. But I never actually went there myself until I did this commission. My father had been in the hospital, Queen Victoria Hospital, at the end of the war after he was badly burned in a tank battle in Holland. And growing up as a family, we heard various stories about about it all, but uh, I never made direct contact with it until I was an adult myself. You know how it is when you grow up, these bits of information become part of your background material and you're never quite sure where you or how you heard about it all. You take it on board like uh, you take on the rest of your culture. Somehow I just knew that this had been a very important thing in my father's life of course and he had been visibly burned you know until the end of his life his hands and his face were clearly not the same as other people's when the commission came through for the for the statue was that because they knew about your family history or was it just because you'd done similar projects before yes it was similar projects before they they liked a sculpture i'd made of john betjeman at st pancras station and casting about for sculptor lighted on me and phoned me up and told me that I'd never have heard of this chap before, but would I consider doing a statue of him? And I said, well, actually, I have heard about him before, and, and this is how. They were delighted, and it, it meant I didn't have any competition. Yeah, I couldn't say no then. <laughs> was the commission that you received, was it to make a sculpture of McIndoe, or was it to make a memorial to that project? Because obviously you've gone for a not just a straight sculpture of the man. Initially, it was a sculpture of McIndoe. And then it very quickly became clear to me that he couldn't really be divorced from his story. You, you could have a statue of a surgeon, but um, his story was so bound up with the story of, the, of his patients that um, it seemed to me to be an opportunity to, to discuss both of them in the one piece and to make a, a sculpture about the relationship between surgeon and patient. And we went ahead with that. So it is a McIndoe monument, but it's a McIndoe and the guinea pig club monument, really. And did you model the patient on anyone in particular? Was there a temptation to model it on your father? Definitely the temptation was not to model it on my father, because that might have been calling attention to his case as being in some way prevailing over other people's. I mean, it's an archetype. Or if not an archetype, it, was a, it wasn't a portrait of any one patient. It needed to stand for them all. But I, as many of them had wounded hands as well as wounded heads and faces, I did take the liberty of putting my own father's hands into the, giving them to the patient. My father had clawed hands. His, his fingers were closed up into his, into his palms as a result of his burns. And that was a fairly common injury. And so it didn't seem to be too arrogant to, 
to be adding them to the figure. We live in a world of consequences, of actions and reactions. We obsessively teach it to children, your actions have consequences, which really means that if they do something bad, something bad will happen to them. You don't just get to fly your Messerschmitt home and forget about it. You don't get to sleep easy at night. Obviously, every adult knows that consequence as punishment is a lie. Many actions don't have reactions. They just hang there in space, a thing that happened. Until we call them history and judge them to be on the wrong or right side of an ever-moving line. Chance plays a far bigger role than consequence. For East Grinstead, the guinea pigs were a live reminder that life has to go on that the clock keeps ticking. And in the years after the war, when the town's process of grieving for the children who died in the Whitehall cinema had become less urgent, more like scarring, they were reminded that violence, that tragedy, becomes mundane. Those men had endured something in the war that was like a momentary end to everything. Their worlds, their lives, their stories. But the town that didn't stare offered them the chance to leave that there. Not perfectly, not perpetually, But more than must have seemed possible, they left their burning planes, their wounds, their surgeries, the pain and despair and all the other unfathomable emotions in the past and let it become history. A story to be told to children in classrooms, to be immortalised in statues and books and podcasts, to be passed down from generation to generation, stripped back, painless and finally mundane. This has been episode four of The Town That Didn't Stare, written, produced, and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The intro and incidental music is by George Jennings, and the end credits music is by Matt Payne and Ollie Lloyd at Shipyard Audio. On this episode, my interviewees were Emily Mayhew, Gordon Bebb, Jonathan Parrott, Catherine Ferry, John Elledge, and Martin Jennings. This is the fourth part of a six-part series available on all good podcast platforms. You can find out more about the show on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Just go to at the town pod or visit www.thetownpod.com for episode notes and more information. The Town That Didn't Stare is a Podo podcast. For more information, visit podopods.com. Mm-hmm.